Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, dear heart. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm okay. Had a good well, week? Uh, oh, I had a wonderful week of spring break, yes. Great. Well, we've been sick over here, and I'm still kind of struggling, but we only have half a chapter, so I'm determined to do this show. <laughs> okay, sounds good to me, because I'm going to go home and take a nap when I leave here. <laughs> I hear you. I think that's what I'll do, too. I would like to start with a prayer because we forgot to do that last week, and I always want us to have the covering of the Holy Spirit as we do this work. Would you be willing to offer it? Here we are on call and once again being messed with. So, yeah. And that should be part of our prayer, Jenny, today. Is you know, it? I, agreed. I spent the morning just saying, Father, can't you just fix this? I think on some level he wants people to know that we're being trifled with. But yes. Whatever. Would you mind offering the prayer, Nikki? It would be wonderful if you could do that. Okay. Holy Father, hear our prayer today for guidance and protection during this podcast. Thank you for blessing us with this time and this gift and this opportunity to spread the word about John Saxon and his great warrior plan to help children in America. Please protect us with the covering that you can give us from people who would stop what we're trying to do. We know you want us to help and we need you. Thank you so much for being with us. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Another thing that I, I've mentioned this in the past, but I want to start the show with this. Oh, that is my ringtone for my phone. I'm sorry. Ah. Earth, Wind, and Fire, September song. <laughs> um, the elites know exactly how many people in America have been rendered functionally illiterate. They know exactly the demographic, who, it's hit, who it hits, who's kept out of the important conversations of the day because they're not able to read. And they know that many of those people use podcasts and other audio apps, especially talk radio, to um, get their information, their important information. So they honestly do not care what we write, how many books or articles or anything we publish in print. They are not afraid of that. What they are afraid of is an audio podcast that anyone can listen to, whether they can read or not, to get this sort of information. They do not want all of those who can't do math or read to understand the way that they have been trifled with and messed with. They, they don't want them to know that. And so I personally believe that's part of why we are being so uh, trifled with and messed with with this podcast is because we're taking your book, which describes in detail the math war, the one-man war that John Saxon had against all of the rest of the publishing houses. We are sharing the history of that war, how it unfolded, the role that, that John had in, in making certain that real math continued on in America, and they do not want that story being told. Yeah. They don't want anybody to under understand this history. They don't want people who cannot read, who are functionally illiterate. And the definition of someone who's functionally illiterate 
these people can write a check, they can write a thank you note, they are very able to do their day-to-day -day lives, but they cannot go into a library and check out a two-inch thick nonfiction book and take it home and read it within a week or two and then, you know, articulate what they read. That is my definition of literacy. And so to those people who struggle because of dyslexia or whatever impediment they have to being able to read and retain what they've just read, um, these podcasts are dedicated to you, to your kids and grandkids. You have been trifled with in every dimension of your life. We acknowledge that. We pray for you. We hope for you. We're glad you found this podcast today. And we want you to know that we understand what you have suffered because of people who do not care about children, who've had perhaps an agenda to socialize, communize America. We understand what you've suffered. So today we are reading the second half of chapter seven, which is titled A Father's Legacy, part two. So Nikki, can you kick that off for us? I can, and I'd like to do just a moment's review because this chapter was one where John had done videos, home videos, to explain to his children how much he loved them and why and their background and some of their activities that they had while growing up with him. And I want people to understand that these first seven chapters are designed for readers to see John as a human being first and then as a warrior and then as an educator, because it puts flesh on a name. It's not just a person. This is a really, really wonderful man who had a wonderful life with his children. And this chapter is about his life with his children. So starting in the middle, we're going with John's appreciation of good writing with rich words was a lifelong habit, according to his children. The first two books he gave Selby to read the summer after her fifth grade were To Kill a Mockingbird and Gone with the Wind. He talked about the characters in those books as though they lived next door, she said, and that made me just want to know about them. I couldn't put down those books. When John discovered books on tape, he reached new heights. He reached new heights, she said. He listened to them while driving and... While he loved that opportunity, those who rode with him didn't because his hearing was bad and he played them at full volume. When she cleaned out his car after he died, he had finished listening to a medieval history by William Manchester, a world lit only by fire, and was halfway through another tape. John had about 30 pairs of reading glasses around the house, car, and office, said Selby because he didn't want to waste time looking for a pair of glasses. All of them were in some state of disrepair, frequently held together by a safety pin where the arm had fallen off. When he walked by his desk, he would frequently be sitting there writing with one pair on his nose, one pair on his head, one pair tucked in the collar of his shirt, and a pair on the table, and they were always smudged. For Selby, Quote, it was just fun to be with him all the time, with his spontaneity and what he called his adventuring, unquote. He wanted them to learn everything. They went ice skating and skiing and horseback riding as kids. If a lesson were available, they took it. He would say, I don't have much money, so I can't buy you things, but I'm buying you lessons because lessons can't be taken away from you. 
That had even included sewing lessons. John wouldn't give her money to buy clothes, but he would give her all the money he could for her to make, to make them. At the same time, he was quick to let them pursue things they liked that he felt would better them, whether it was guitar lessons, travel, or sports activities. She said nothing put him off or made him reticent to attempt anything different, and that included meeting people. The backside of that was sometimes he didn't seem to have boundaries, at least as my mom saw it. Reviewing what were special Air Force Academy days, Selby told how her dad would come home and say, let's get in the car, we're going adventuring. They wouldn't know where they were going. Sometimes they ended up on the obstacle course behind the academy in the hills. Go, go, he'd be shouting, climb over that log, go up that wall. It was a blast for them, she said. We might just go to town. It didn't matter where it was, but it was to be an adventure. Mary Esther was rarely with John and the kids during such experiences that involved outdoor and athletic type events. But then she was staying home at home with Sarah, who was born in 1963, their first year at the academy. It is also important to remember the order of birth and ages among the four children when looking at such adventuring activities. In 1965, for example, while John was in the second year of teaching at the academy, Johnny was 12 years old, Selby was 11, Bruce seven, and Sarah two. That meant Johnny, Selby, and Bruce were more involved with their father's individual and group teaching for several years before Sarah's possible inclusion. Both Selby and Bruce mentioned that when they went skiing, they wore multiple pairs of their flannel pajamas as long underwear, and they ate out of the trunk of their car instead of up on the mountain because it was more affordable. They ate peanut butter sandwiches and hot dogs while other kids had lunch inside. Yet, said Selby, even with my wooden skis and secondhand boots and being 11 years old, I was on the racing team. They visited swap sales on Labor Day for those boots and other equipment and skied in sweaters and hats their grandmother made. Selby wore her brother's hand-me-down parkas. We didn't look slick, but we could ski better than most anyone out there, and that had a lot to do with my dad's attitude about enjoying things. That it wasn't about possessions or what you had, but what you were capable of doing. John had told her, I want you to learn to play tennis, so when you grow up and move away and someone needs a fourth person to play tennis, you can do that. It opens doors. Learning thing when you're young takes away the timidity of learning things when you're older, he told them. You don't want to spend your life watching other people doing things and saying, boy, I wish I could do that. You just get up and do it. When having to describe experiences, events, or persons that have been important to you in your development and her application for admission to medical school, Selby had written about how the adventuring led by her father had helped develop her academic successes and personal philosophies about achievement. From the time I was young, fat and freckled, my father told me I was pretty, smart, 
and I could do anything I wanted with my life. I listened and I believed him. In subtle ways, he taught me not to fear what I did not know. To Selby, that was one of the great qualities of her father. She also wrote in the application about the day after she received her driver's license, and he asked her to go into the city to run some errands for him. She said she didn't know the way, having never been there, and told him she wasn't going. He said, be back by four. <laughs> there was the end of her senior year in high school when he decided she needed to go to Europe for the summer. Again, she told him she didn't want to go since she didn't know her way around Europe and couldn't speak the languages. He responded, your plane leaves two weeks from today. We'll see you in August. Bruce's memories mirror those of Johnny and Selby about childhood adventures. It's what he began seeing as a teenager that adds more to this picture of their father. Like Johnny, Bruce's friends loved John because he encouraged them to succeed and was, quote, always asking them questions, unquote. Bruce said his father's love of teaching was reflected in his engagement with students, especially as he told them about his own struggles with mathematics and how he had arrived at a method that worked and from which students could truly learn the hard subject of math. His dad truly believed what he was saying, said Bruce, when he told everyone, I've got the answer to math education. When John started writing his first math curriculum for use at Oscar Rose Junior College in Midwest City, Bruce was still in high school. The book came at the right time in his life, he said. His parents' divorce in 1977 was one year after John published his first work as a stapled paperback for his college students. This work was then published in 1978 by Prentice Hall as a college textbook. He said they all thought, wow, dad's going to have a book published. Bruce said as young people, they didn't fully understand the significance of what their father was doing. When Johnny, Selby and Bruce were all in college in 1978, Sarah was still in high school and living with Mary Esther. John's empty house was to become filled with his passion for producing a first-year algebra textbook for high school students. But Bruce said that while his father became consumed with his writing, he always managed to remain engaged with his children's lives. For example, there is a home video in which Bruce is showing John photographs from Bruce's trip to England. The visits included sites related to the Beatles, an important singing group to Bruce at the time. His father listened closely to the site descriptions and some songs, histories, as Bruce described everything in detail. The total absorption of John in Bruce's personal interest in the Beatles was clearly apparent as he sat quietly and looked at each photo Bruce handed him and listened to his son's enthusiastic recounting of the trip. Sarah had the benefit of learning her father's values and philosophy and the relationships of her siblings during her first 13 years, but she had a more limited time during her high school years after her parents' divorce. 
While this was a huge emotional strain and frustration for John, Sarah said that neither of her parents ever spoke against the other one. Both mom and dad wanted all of us to be comfortable in our own skin, she said, and to be our own person. That's why daddy insisted that we all earn a college degree. He had said, I don't care if you ever use it, but you need to have a degree. It was important to him that we all had a separate life from him, and that included one from his publishing company. He therefore never put an onus on them to run the company someday. Sarah was taught early about Auntie Belle, her father's aunt in Georgia, who had devoted 53 years of her life to teaching and making sure as a young woman that any of her brothers or sisters who wanted to attend college got that opportunity, including John's father. This followed her father's method of teaching by example. Daddy was a lifelong learner, said Sarah. What people don't know is that he, just, he wasn't just about math. She said his goal was to turn around education and that he would go to anyone to spread his message. When asked about his textbooks becoming more popular in smaller school districts and with homeschooling parents, Sarah responded that her father wanted to get his message to as many people as possible and therefore did not consider focusing his sales toward any one area or group. When he was ignored or criticized by Oklahoma educators, I told him about the biblical verse from Luke that a prophet is not accepted in his own land. She said when people ignored him, that didn't stop him. At the same time, Sarah admitted that John would sometimes react to things he thought were a silly waste of time, or at least were things he didn't understand the need for, and this could come back on him. This attitude seemed reminiscent of his college days when he would blow off studying because he often saw it as, quote, playing the game, unquote, which he refused to do. Now, as a publisher, John was making those same kinds of decisions on occasion. For example, he would sign CPA records for credit card expenses as Joe Blow, Joe Namath, or Daffy Duck, anything silly that came to mind. She said the auditors did come back with questions that John had to answer. Criticisms were often laid on John for his physical movements while talking, remembered Sarah. There was one DVD that he made and his hands were flying all over the place. That's why you'll see him on later DVDs holding his hands together in front of him while he talks. John remained an animated person, however, in more casual or personal settings. He often rubbed the top of his head or pulled on the skin of his neck, for example, while talking during the videotapings of his personal history. Because his right hand had been broken in the 1953 airplane crash, he had crooked fingers and those bent fingers were noticeable as he held forth with expressive hand gestures about his programs to any listener. There were times such as in Dallas, Texas and Boise, Idaho, when he climbed on a table and talked to groups from that vantage point. This caused some people to think he was indeed a little more than eccentric. The habit of climbing onto tables to get a better vantage point 
had been one he adopted while teaching at Oscar Rose, according to Selby. With students at all three blackboards in the room, John could see them all as they worked by standing on the table. Sarah said that perhaps because of her father's strong belief in service to others, Auntie Bell's historical influence on the family and the desire to have a solid educational foundation for their own children, she, Bruce, and their spouses had decided to establish a private Christian school in their hometown of Tulsa in 2000 called the Regent Preparatory School of Oklahoma. The Saxon mathematics curriculum is used, of course, at the school. When Sarah picked up her oldest daughter from her first day in the seventh grade, she asked what math book the class would be using. Her daughter said, and then showed her, the orange one. Sarah cried at the sight of the orange one, which is the Algebra One book, and the first one her dad had published with his own money in 1981. Besides teaching the intrinsic values of doing right, working hard, taking care of others, and accepting people for who they are, right where they are, John always celebrated life's victories, no matter whose victories they were, according to Selby. And he passed on that joy of feeling good about special events in everyday life. He loved Monty Python, the comedian who used coconut halves to make the sound of horses' hooves in the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail. John had two coconut halves in the house that he kept on the front bookcase. One of the silly but fun things we would do was run a victory lap around the house, clapping the coconuts together when anyone had something to celebrate. Daddy always made a big deal out of the right things. He had several favorite poems, including If by Rudyard Kipling, which he read to the children numerous times. Another favorite poem was by Robert Frost, The Road Less Traveled. He had that one memorized. In fact, while he was sitting in a friend's car in August 1996, two months before his death in October, John found a scratch piece of paper and wrote the poem from memory. That written paper is now framed and hanging in Selby's home. She said this poem is his life story. He would always say, go the other way. Go the way people haven't gone. That's the adventure. A favored teaching technique was his use of analogies or examples. He would tell of a neighbor, friend, or someone in the news who had done something well, or not so well, who had made a choice, and John would let that be the teaching point, rather than pointing his finger at his children and saying, you need to do this, or don't do that. Uh, and just as an insertion, I can think of another person who used parables and stories to teach the people. Selby recalled there was an actress who years ago left her husband and children in the United States to go to Europe to be with another man. John had great disdain for this, that behavior. How can anyone be so selfish, he asked. She said his desire for his children to be able to open any door did not mean that trumped the needs of others. We weren't allowed to abdicate responsibilities in the pursuit of self. It didn't matter what you had, he would say, 
It was your attitude that kept you from enjoying life, not your position in society. He was adamant about that. Selby freely admits there was no question that she and her father are like-minded personality-wise, more so than the other children. But their father-daughter connection was an intentional one that developed from his special attention to her so that she was not treated differently from her brothers. He wanted me to be feminine and ladylike, but if my brothers had to do something, I did it too. She remembers one day when he spent about two hours teaching her to pitch and to hit a baseball so that she could hold her own with the boys. When she got her first car, she had to learn how to change the oil. She had to mow the lawn, and if the boys went skiing or horseback riding, she did too. He saw all those skills out there as just as being just as essential for me as for my brothers. Remembering her father's words about Air Force wives being left with no resources after the death of a husband or through divorce, Selby said he thought it was wrong for women not to have professions or a means to secure their families financially. He saw it as a failure of expectations for women that wasn't being met and told her, I never want you in the position of not being able to put bread on the table. I never want you to be in a position not to enjoy something because someone says you are a woman. John was therefore very deliberate that Selby and Sarah never be victimized in that sense. The bar was just as high for the girls as anyone else. And for Selby, quote, that was wonderful. I was very confident and I learned to be fearless. I learned not to be afraid to try things, to move around and to meet people. He was never patronizing or condescending. He had great expectations for my enjoyment in life and the things I could achieve, unquote. Some might conclude that John Saxon was pro-feminist, but they would be wrong. It wasn't equality that motivated John to push girls toward independence. It was the chance for an opportunity that motivated him, said Selby. He clearly understood the roles of men and women as he saw them in the culture. He maintained a view that material possessions were not a driving force in his life, even as his millionaire status grew. He frequently told interviewers and students that he had bought himself a Mercedes and a gold watch and then would say, what more do I need? Selby remembered when she was little, her dad would say to them, now when my ship comes in, I'm going to get you a new parka or some other item like that. She asked her daddy what that meant. Quote, that's just an expression, he would say, for when people hit it big and make lots of money, they hit the big time, unquote. She said he would laugh and then say, quote, but we've already hit the big time, unquote. The fact that he ultimately did hit the big time, she said, and that his ship had come in was always such a joke to him, quote. It wasn't ever anything he would have strived for, unquote, said Selby. He was never motivated by the desire to get rich or be known. He was always motivated to do the right thing. The consequence of always doing the right thing and pursuing the common good 
resulted in his hitting it big and becoming well-known. As a father, John's legacy may be as simple as making sure that his children knew he loved them. I always knew it, said Selby. He verbally told me that all the time. He said his, never, his dad never did that for him. His dad belittled him, so he was not going to make the same mistake with us. That legacy of love taught to the Saxon children as they were growing up and even throughout adulthood is echoed today when Johnny says, I am proud to say, after 20 years in business together, my siblings and I are still fast friends and maintain family bonds. We regularly vacation together as families. It would appear that John had been a master teacher within his home. One final chance, Nikki. Can you hear me? You try and talk. Uh, how frustrating. Well, thank you to all who've stopped by for a listen. We will be back next week with John Saxon's story on the podcast. Thank you, Nikki Hayes, for your time. This is Jenny Hatch signing off for now.